Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. What a, um, what a weekend we had last weekend. Uh, I want to praise God for the li- people who gave their lives to the Lord and others who are coming back to the Lord. Uh, it was an awesome weekend, and I love seeing that uh, the Lord is still at work. In fact, I was having a conversation with a member of our church last night who said she brought a friend uh, to Easter. It's the first time this friend grew up in a different faith background, first time this friend had ever been to a church, ever. Uh, had a conversation after it, and over the course of the week, they kept talking, and then uh, yesterday morning, she got to lead that friend to saving faith in Jesus Christ, right? The Lord is working. He's moving. I love it. I just, I, I love, I want to be that kind of church where you don't need any kind of prior church background to like be at our church, right? Understand the gospel, and I want to be the kind of church that celebrates clearly the gospel and that equips its members to go and share the gospel, and that's what we got to see. Um, also recognized last weekend, uh, based on RSVPs, everything else, about 25% of you, it was your first time at Mercy Church. Um, so if that's you, you're not alone. And I want to invite you to starting point right after this service, all right? Um, I'm going to be hosting it along with a couple of our team members here. And I'm going to give you basically a 15 to 20 minute version of who we are as a church, all right? What we're all about, what it would look like to plug in here at Mercy and take your next step with Jesus as a part of Mercy Church. And we're all about doing things together. So I know last week uh, I told you in our service, I was like, look, if you feel like the Lord's calling you to go get baptized, take your next step, whatever, um, you're going to look at your friend beside you and you're going to say, you know, uh, if you feel like you need to go, I'll go with you, right? If you want to go, I'll go. And that was kind of our, our call to one another. I want to make that same call right now for starting point, uh, leaving this service, all right? Coming out of this service, after all, one of our values is that we help each other take our next steps in following Jesus, your walk with God. It's a com- community project every step of the way, all right? So in, if investigating like how mercy is going to play a part in your next step, uh, walking with Jesus, well, I want you to stick around and find out about that, but that might be a little intimidating for you, so I want you to do it with the person you came with or with, with somebody else, all right? So we're going to do that same exercise right now. Now we're just talking about starting point after the service. I want you to look at the person, you're right, you're left, you're watching online with us, text somebody and tell them, I'll meet you up. We got four services all day long today. I'll meet you at one of them after the service, all right? I want you to look and say, if you want to go, I'll go. All right, so do that now. Stop looking at me and look at each other. If you want to go, I'll go. Say it. If you want to go, I'll go. If you wanna, even if you've already been, you're making everybody else feel comfortable. If you want to go, I'll go. There we go. All right. Good. All right, that's good. Uh, listen, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. If you got your Bible, that's my transition statement uh, into the sermon. Um, I'm going to give you three sermons over the next uh, three weeks, not all today, over the next three weeks, um, out of Hebrews chapter 12, 
This chapter has captivated my heart and mind since August of last year, uh, specifically for Mercy Church. I preached the first two verses, uh, the first two weeks of the year that kind of kicked off uh, and were the foundation for our Because of Christ series where we talked about who we are and who we feel like God is calling us to be and where he's taking us over the next five years. Um, on, here's why I'm kind of picking the rest of this chapter back up and doing it now. It's because on Easter, we celebrated the resurrection, the center of our hope. For those of you that are new to Christianity, you'll hear more as we go through this sermon and the sermons that follow why the resurrection matters so much to us. But in short, this gospel message that we talked about at Easter is an announcement of God's love for sinners like you and me. And you can receive forgiveness for your sins and a second chance at life here and the promise of eternal life with God forever. It's the greatest news in the history of the world. And so this sermon and every sermon you ever hear preached at Mercy Church is going to major on that very news. What makes me excited about Hebrews 12 is that it offers powerful hope for people that have believed that news who now are enduring the struggles of this life. For people who believe Jesus really died for our sins, really rose again from the grave, and really ascended, there's a whole lot of hope for us. So these three sermons should be sermons of immense hope for Christians. Specifically, this chapter is going to say, hope for Christians who are weary and who feel like giving up. And I feel like many need the hope in these verses uh, you know, there's this strange relationship we often don't know how to articulate that exists in the Christian life between peace and struggle. Like there's the peace, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, cast your burdens on me and I will give you rest, Jesus talks about. There's peace, Philippians 4, right? The peace of Christ that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ. And yet there's struggle. Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able, Luke 13. There's Paul telling Timothy at the end of his life, he's fought the good fight. He's run the good race. He talks about the Christian life as a fight and as a race. There's Hebrews 12, 1, let us run the race with endurance. There's Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. Armor is for warfare. There's peace and there's struggle. And if you talk to people who've been Christians for a little while, they'll acknowledge this dynamic. Like there's this peace and the struggle, but they're not contradictions. See, the main goal of our struggle is to enter more into the rest that God's promises give us. Trusting in God's promises instead of our own sin. And even as we struggle to trust more in God's promises, we do so from a place of deep abiding rest in our spirit because Christ has already won our victory over sin and he's working in us on our behalf. So this chapter, and really this whole book of Hebrews, talks about how to walk in that strange relationship of peace and struggle. And I think we need it right now. And, and the main point of these three sermons is that in order to endure, in order to figure that out, it's going to require of us, and it's going to call us into a bigger view of God. We're just going to need a bigger view of God. The God of Hebrews 12 is massive and mysterious and holy. He is at the same time, the words of this chapter, he's at the same time a loving father and a consuming fire. That's our God. 
And you, can, you, you can't fully comprehend him, but you can worship him. You can. And you can find comfort in the mystery. It's, it's incredible. My prayer for the next three weeks is that we as a church would become a people of holy awe. Holy awe. Like, I, I want you to wind up in silent prayer for an hour a day because you've realized that the God of your 15-second dinner prayer is just way bigger, way more involved, way more worthy than what you've been giving him. I'm praying your worship is filled with a kind of wonderment and fullness and joy when we're together and when you're at home alone. I'm praying that your hours at work are increased in listening for what the Spirit of God might be leading you towards because you've become more aware that this holy, majestic, massive God has offered a relationship with you where you can walk around in his power and in his presence. And so you want to walk with him, a bigger view of God. And it starts, we're going to start in verse 3 of Hebrews 12, talking about being children of God. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about God's providence in the suffering of his children and how his providence can strengthen us for the struggle. So let me say something here. I do believe this chapter is powerful. I believe it carries immense hope. But it's not a chapter that people naturally gravitate towards and celebrate. Because dealing with God's providence in our suffering and in our pain is uncomfortable. In other words, if you've had a pretty pain-free life, you're not as likely to cherish the kind of spirituality that's taught in this chapter and Yet the more you have suffered and gone through it, the more you you cling to the precious teachings that are in here, if you're willing to believe them. It's a big if, though. This is just, it's not an easy, feel-good chapter with five steps to make the best of your struggles or something like that. It's a massive statement about the gracious providence of God over the suffering that his people go through. And Courtney, my wife, as I was talking with her about it this week, goes, why are you doing that the week after Easter? <laughs> I was like, look, I feel like this is what God has had for us for a long time, and I've wanted to give it to you, and so I'm trusting him in his timing. But also, this is what resurrection hope is in real life. I've said this to you for years. We're not playing games here. We're not. Life is too hard, and life is too short. And there is real good hope for real life in this. And the main idea of this sermon is simply Don't give up, but in Christ, get up. Don't give up. Don't give up, but in Christ, you can get up. We're going to walk through the passage. We're going to go from verse 3 to verse 13. We're going to let the passage speak on God's providence in our suffering. We're going to let God's words, what we Christians, we think of the Bible as God's words to us. So we're going to let God's words expand our view of him. And then we'll talk about them, all right? Verse 3, Hebrews 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. That's where that theme comes from. In struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, consider, think on 
dwell on, remember. It seems that critical to not growing weary in your struggle, growing weary in the Christian life, it seems something critical is remembering, drawing your mind to Christ. And there's something that he's saying happens supernaturally here. You consider him, think back on him so that you won't grow weary and give up. It's awesome. And there's a legacy, by the way, of suffering that this call is built on. Hebrews 12 comes after Hebrews 11. That's a shocker, right? Hebrews 11 concludes listing people from Israel's history who suffered and died for following God. And it even says the world was not worthy of these folks because they believed they had something better with the Lord than without the Lord something worth dying for. And then this author, having said that in Hebrews 11, now coming into Hebrews 12, he's talking to the church, trying to prepare them for the struggle ahead of them. He says, listen, remember Christ. Look at Christ. He endured such hostility against or from sinners himself. The legacy is continuing, and now the church is struggling. And y'all, we got to get real clear about what the struggle is. That's going to help inform the hope that you get out of this passage. The struggle is hostility they are experiencing from people for believing and preaching that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's their struggle. It's persecution. Now, the persecution hasn't reached bloodshed yet at the time of this writing, but hardship is on them, and we know eventually there will be martyrs, right? And and as you and I read this, we know more people were killed for proclaiming Christianity in the 20th century than the first 19 centuries combined. Like persecution has continued. And in the post-Christian West that we live in, you will suffer. Let's be clear. You will suffer for being a Christian. Being a Christian used to be culturally normative. Right now it is culturally permissible, but less so. And in the generations to come, even less so. Right, But the members of the local church that, that we are in right now, we're not so much in danger, most of us, of martyrdom. But even still, this is talking to the ones who are growing weary. And while they won't say it, they're thinking about giving up. Giving up on Jesus, giving up on the Christian life, asking themselves, is it all worth it? We're tired, we're weary. Not just your body, by the way. It's not just a physical thing. Your soul, your soul being weary. And before we get any further, I just want you to hear God saying to you, I see you. I know. I know what you're feeling. This was written 2,000 years ago from people or four people from another continent and another time that you would think on the surface you got nothing in common with, Right? And here they are, tired and weary from the struggle of walking with Jesus. They had peace, but also soul weariness. And God sees them, and he sees you, and the first thing he says is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Before he gives you knowledge, I know it's what we want, y'all. It's what we want in our suffering. We want, like, knowledge of why, right? Explanation. But before he does any of that, he's saying twice in back-to-back verses, I love you, and the proof of my love for you is in Jesus and in what he did for you that hasn't gone anywhere, so receive what I'm about to talk about, your suffering, while you're staring at the cross. Jesus went first. He went farther 
Then you or I have gone. That's why verse 2, we spent two weeks on in January. It says, fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy before him is you and I. The cross wasn't his joy. The forgiveness the cross won for us, that was his joy. Our eternal adoption as sons and daughters was his joy for you and I. The reason I spend a moment here reminding you of that is because suffering is a spiritual catalyst, uh, something that moves you, right? Suffering is a spiritual catalyst. It moves you, but you do have a say in where it moves you. You do. You are never, what I'll tell you with suffering, you're never the same person on the other side of suffering. There is no return to the way things were because you are different after suffering. The question for today is where are you going to let your suffering take you? Will you let it lead you further away from God? Weary, tired, I'm giving up. Or closer to him and what this passage is going to say is bear good lasting fruit. All right. With that set up, Verse 3 and 4, get ready. God is about to talk about what he's doing and your suffering. To do that, he's going to recall to mind a verse in Proverbs. Watch this. I'm going to give you 5 through 8. Everybody doing okay? Doing good? Yeah, just like everybody, a little bit head nod. We're doing okay. You know, we got the mask. I'm talking about suffering. It's like, I need to know y'all are in here. I'm, I'm suffering a little bit. Like, I'm nervous. All right, here we go. Verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. So endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without Discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Before I get into it, how does that rest with you? Some of you, I know, this leads you into, it actually does, it leads you into worship. And I love it because you're on the other side and you've welcomed the work God planned to do in you through your suffering. As we look at this, we're like, okay, where does suffering come from? Like, we want answers, and it seems like it comes from two places, right? It comes from sin. In this specific instance, in this writing, it comes from acts of hostility by sinners towards Christians. And that makes sense to us. It's the second source of suffering that's harder to deal with because the author attributes suffering to God. The persecution of Christians who are preaching the gospel is called the loving discipline of their heavenly father. That's the great burden of Hebrews 12. So what do we make of this? Well, I actually think it's most important to let the text, let the scriptures speak. Again, this is 
uh, Bible Reading 101. We go through it. We observe it. We listen to the Bible, try to understand the Bible's words, and then seek to apply it. And what it says is that sonship, and when you see sons right there, see it as the way it was written, like, a, like mankind, you know, a universal category for both males and females. Sisters, you are very much included into this. And what it's saying is that whatever suffering is, it is something that comes to those that God identifies as his sons, as his children. God's involvement in your suffering is positionally from the position of father. And the suffering is equated as discipline in this passage. And discipline, it says, is a good thing for fathers to give their sons. After all, he says the proof that someone is a true son of a father is the father's discipline. If you claim to have a father and you've never received discipline from that father, you're not his true child. Discipline is the proof of sonship. Absence of discipline, there must not be a parent. What son is there that a father doesn't discipline? Now, you think about this. You see a wild child running around Target, McDonald's, or, well, you used to go in places, like running around somewhere, right, with just no respect for anybody, no self-control. What do you think? You might for a split second think, what's wrong with that kid? But only for a split second. Because then you think, what's wrong with his parents? What's wrong with him, right? His parents must not love him. Because if they did, that boy would be getting a whooping right now or at home or whatever. You know what I mean? Discipline is an act of love. And he goes on. Furthermore, verse 9, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live and live that little thing you could just let wash over you. It's going to end up being a massive thing for understanding this passage. And live. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. What he's doing is he's trying to let you think about your own life. Now, I know not every one of us had dads. Some of our dads left. Some of our dads passed away. And you felt that gap if he wasn't around. Like the fact that you're alive and somewhat well-adjusted as an adult and you didn't have a dad, that probably means you, your mom or somebody else was an absolute superhero, right? But even if you had a good dad who did his very best, what scripture is reminding us that we know to be true is he was still finite in knowledge based on what seemed good to them. I want all of your parents to just like, especially parents of young kids, to just take a deep breath here, what seemed good to them. This is the Bible confirming that all parents are just making it up as they go along, right? I don't know. That seems good. Let's try that, right? This is exactly what's going on. I mean, how many tactics have we done with that? I don't know. That seems good. That might work. The longer, longer you are a parent, the less you know what you are doing, right? And you are finite in your knowledge. I'll never, this came to mind to me this week. My younger brother, my, uh, I got two younger brothers. One's three years younger. We grew up, we fought a lot, like physical altercations a lot. Until so we got to teenage years. I threw him through a wall and we decided we're getting too big to fight like this. We got to do something different. But before that, when we were littler, we used to fight. And I developed this habit. Matt was about seven. Maybe he'll end up watching and confirm this. I think he was seven and I was 10. He was about three years apart. And 
We were fighting, right? And my parents would be like, y'all gotta stop fighting. And I developed this habit of choking my brother, like physically grabbing him around his neck and choking him, right? It wasn't good. I'm not over here like, hey, you should do that. No, this is bad, right? It's a bad thing. And my parents disciplined me. Like they put the fear of God in me and I was like, all right, I need to stop doing that because the punishment is way too bad, right? So their discipline worked. But Matt knew that I would get in like big time trouble if I choked him. And one day, Shortly after I had stopped the choking, because I knew it was bad for me, me and him start getting in a fight, and all of a sudden, he breaks away, starts running up the stairs from the basement with his hands around his own neck. And he's like, I'm going to tell mom and dad you're choking me. I'm like, you, I mean, the injustice that went through (laughs) me right there, you bet, no, there's no, and there's no way they're going to believe you, right? Matt gets up there, and he's done it to where he has the fingerprints. Those are the evidences, right, against me. And he gets up there. He's like, Mom, Dad, Spencer was choking me. And my dad goes into a, I mean, he is hot, right? Don Shelton was hot on that day. And he comes down, how dare you? We have talked about this, getting ready to inflict all. And I said, I didn't do it. He's like, look at the fingerprints. And I said, he did it. Dad said, to himself. What kind of a person do you think your brother is that he would do that to? Now you're going to get punishment for that too. My brother came clean three years ago. That's right. That's right. Three years ago. I'm like, and my parents really felt bad. They really did. I was like, it's okay. I'm well adjusted. You know, it's, it's, it's all right. Despite all of that finite in knowledge. They did what seemed best to them with that space. Hey, great parents. Even the best dads and moms, finite in knowledge. And he says, submit to them for a short time. They disciplined us for a short time, right? Until we aged out. They're limited in knowledge, limited in time, even the best parents. He says that the discipline of those fathers, so limited, was good. It's like, those parents, that's just like, a middle school baseball team, and he's saying, like, God is major league. You know, how much more would you benefit if you submit to the Father of Spirits and live? It's going to produce life. The running theme of the gospel is that when you submit to God, it feels like death for a bit, and then you find life. It's the mystery of the gospel. Submitting is living. Trusting God and submitting to his discipline yields life. And this passage is God saying, Remember how with your earthly parents, you didn't like discipline, but later you were thankful for it? If God has chosen to reveal himself to you as a father, a good father who loves and cares, in fact, the one who created fatherhood so that you could possibly try and understand his relationship with you, then it's logical. And even more importantly, as I'm talking to you guys, it's biblical that we should expect something from him that feels like discipline, that feels unwelcomed that feels painful and yet is for our good. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. Keeps going in verse 10, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. So let me ask, as we start to move our way towards application, what are painful things in your life right now? It is possible according to scripture here, that these things are God's discipline for you. Now listen, that's a mystery I do not speak lightly. Because I know over the course of the day, I'm going to talk to people that are in 
real pain. And you're a victim in that. I acknowledge that. I've been praying so much, God, don't only give me your words here. Give me your tone. Give me just work through me as the great counselor and healer. I hope you don't forget verses 1 through 6 just because we're in these verses. God loves you. Christ on the cross proves it. He has gone before you, and now his spirit, his very presence, if you are in Christ, his presence is with you. I know that doesn't resolve everything like in terms of answers, but what I'll say is that, yes, some discipline is consequential, like you did these actions, and so you have this discipline. It's a necessary reaction to disobedience, but not all discipline is. All right, there are some disciplines that I give my sons and daughters in order to shape them into the kinds of adults God calls them to be, and me giving it to them has nothing to do with what they've done. Some discipline is punitive, but not all. But all discipline is refining if we'll receive it as such. It moves you. It's a catalyst if you'll receive what God is doing in it. He says later on, however, as he keeps going, it yields the peaceful This is what it's doing. This is what God is doing in it. Yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. This is the promise later on. The hope of this passage is a future hope. The processes of God in your heart, trusting him right now in your suffering. You're not seeing the fruit immediately. Later on, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, This is going to sound like a strange sentence, but... I don't know much about wine making, all right? I don't. But I was talking this sermon out with my wife, Courtney. She mentioned a book that she just read recently by Beth Moore's called Chasing Vines. And she drew out the analogy really well about how the best wine is produced by vines that undergo stress. It's through some a season of stress and a little drought that really good grapes are produced. And after the stress that the vine undergoes, then later the fruit is produced. If the vine doesn't have any stress and it's overwatered and everything else, then no fruit. Now, the analogy to your suffering is the active depending on God in your suffering is producing something different than would be produced without the suffering. The pain is a necessary ingredient for the kind of fruit that God is producing in you. And the fruit is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You're going to start to look, act more like Jesus. You're going to be closer to him. It's going to yield peace in your life. The peace that passes all understanding is what's going to come from the struggle peace in your life, and peace in the lives of others. So he says, therefore, now it gives you the action. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Get up, rise in Christ, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Therefore, in recognition that God, your heavenly father, who who loves you and who's working something in this is with you. So what do you do about this discipline you're feeling right now? Strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Don't give up In, in your own strength. Don't give up. Instead, get up in God's strength. In Christ, get up and walk. 
but one step at a time. That's the word to us today. Don't give up. Don't give up. He's still with you. Your struggle is not in vain. Your suffering is not pointless. It does matter how you walk through this. You must walk through this. God is calling you to walk through this dependently, not independent of God. Walking through your suffering independent of God, it's exhausting. It is exhausting to the soul. Walk dependent on him. Lean on to him. Make straight paths for your feet. You hear the echo of Proverbs 3, 6. He will make your paths straight. Get up, walk forward in obedience to the Lord one step at a time. And if you trust him, just one step at a time. This is why we say, what is your next step in following Jesus? It might just be standing up. If you trust him enough to walk forward in obedience, healing will come. Strength will come. Fruit will come. Suffering can produce dislocation or healing, depending on how we receive it. So let me finish just talking real quick about where strength to get up. If get up is our action step, therefore, in Christ, strengthen your tired hands. and we get up and walk, if that's it, where does that strength come from? Let's summarize what we've seen in these few verses together. I'm going to give you, I think, three probably is a good preacher thing, three application points, okay? Here's the first one. Where does the strength come from? I don't even know if they're applications. Some is applications, some is just a truth to hang on to. But the first one, trust your heavenly father. Where does strength to get up in Christ come from? Trust your heavenly father. You know what? I think the hardest or a hard thing for us as grownups is to go to God like a child. We don't want to do that anymore. Our skeptical outlook on life demands evidence and explanation. We want to know why things are the way they are. And when this mystery of God's providence in our suffering collides with this biblical truth that we know in him, there is no sin in him. There is no evil. Well, we have a hard time with it. These things collide and it's okay to bring that confusion and bring that lack of understanding and clarity to God. But we sometimes forget that if he really is God, there's some things that he understands that I never will. Like, I don't know why hurricanes devastate particular regions that they do. I don't know. I don't know why God allows natural disasters. I don't know why he allows evils that affect millions and evils that affect the one in silence. And the hardest thing is that as a child, he doesn't call me to fully know why. I want to know. I want that explanation. Instead, what he gives me is his word and his presence. He gives me himself. He tells me that like a father, he hasn't left me. He says, in the greatest moment of agony, I can have peace that passes understanding. I read Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph and his brothers are back together, right? These are his brothers who ganged up on him, wanted to kill him, and instead sold him into certain death and slavery. Uh, modern day language, right? They beat him up and trafficked him. And yet when Joseph reconciles with them at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph's acknowledging that that's him saying, I'm not in the place of God. I know all, all that you did to me. Am I in the place of God? No, you planned evil against me. Look at what he says next. 
This is scripture, and I'm putting this here so that you deal with God, not with Spence, right? God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. That's challenging to me because it doesn't fit my view of God if my view of God's providence is confined only to things that feel positive. If I get the parking spot, the house, the job, the spouse, then God provided. But if I didn't, or if things go bad, what do I do with it? Is this God, is this scripture saying God the Father was providential in that as well? I told you, this, this passage, this sermons, it's going to force us into a spot of, we're going to have to expand our view of God. In other words, your pain, you're not being treated as an enemy. You're being treated as a loved child of God. But the issue is, Will you receive that? Will you let the word of God settle the issue for you so that when, when suffering comes, it will come if it's not there already. You don't turn on God. You start to accuse him. Because he may not, probably won't tell you why. Probably won't tell you why it's your turn, why it's happening now, why there's so much pain, why it's lasting so long. But he's told you what you need to know. He loves you. He loves you, child, as an all-wise father. Will you trust him? He's not sending you away to suffer on your own. Unique thing about the Christian God, he draws you close as you suffer and struggle. Remember, the Christian life is a struggle from a place of peace and peace refined by struggle. I think of Lamentations 3, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he'll have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he won't afflict from his heart. Though he calls grief, he won't afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So first, trust your heavenly father. The second, preach the gospel to yourself. These last two will go pretty quick. Preach the gospel to yourself. I told this to you guys, if you were here, when we did Psalm 42 a couple years ago. The call not to give up begins with remember Christ. Remembering, that's not just like trying to make you feel guilty. Like, hey, it's not as bad as Jesus had it. That's not what it's doing here. There's actual power in recalling the gospel to mind. Replace your thoughts with what God has said about you and God's truth over you. See, the most influential person on your life is you. It's you. You listen to you way more than you listen to anybody else. All right? We're always interpreting events and situations around us. We're quietly creating a story out of it about who we are and what it all means for us. And sometimes our own voice, still affected by the reality of sin, like everything else, can be very dangerous to listen to. Like I said, in Psalm 42, David, he says, he goes, it's the psalm of like lament, confusion, despair. He's like, have you forgotten me, God? And then he interrupts his own line of thinking. He says, verse 11 of Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he stops, he says, hope in God. Like he just interrupts himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He stops listening to himself, and he starts preaching to himself. You catch that? That's what we got to do in suffering. You're the biggest influence on your life. And the great art of enduring suffering is preaching to ourselves once we've listened to ourselves. When the thought comes in, man, it's, just, it's never going to get better. It's never going to get better. The reply needs to be, wait, hold on. Self, you need a hope in God. God came, he died to set me free from sin, and I know in my struggle that I can keep coming back to his promises for me. 
You're in that place where you're scared, you feel like God has forgotten you, and you're saying it over and over, is, does he even remember, is he even still there? Hold on, Hebrews 13, 5, he will never leave me or forsake me. Hold on, self, I need to start preaching to myself, right? I'm never going to get over this sin. This is your interruption sound for the day, all right? You just, hold on. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I'm a new creation in Christ. So that accusation, that label that I'm never going to get past that, uh-uh. Nope, I'm going to preach the gospel to myself here. I'm going to remember Christ in the middle of my suffering. And lastly, I'll just tell you, last thing I'll say, we'll get out of here, is to get a sparring partner. I, I told you this when I preached Psalm 42, I felt like I need to bring it back today. The heart is deceitful, and even though we know all these promises and we, we know these truths, sometimes maybe you feel this, you just can't preach to yourself. It's just too hard. So what we need is somebody to take God's promises and just kind of hit us in our thick head with them, right? I always think of Apollo and uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky, right? Maybe you think of Michael B. Jordan Creed because, I mean, that dude's a specimen, right? So whatever it is, like you think, what I think of is Apollo Creed and Rocky because I think of them being each other's sparring partners, right? Making each other stronger. You need someone who will see a weakness or a blind spot and, and call it out on you, and that's going to hurt even if they say, man, you should really see a professional counselor for dealing with this, somebody who can open up the Bible with expertise and help you walk through it. And you got to be open to that. But better that short-term pain than the enemy destroying you and convincing you to just give up. Right? I mean, I have a friend or two that do this for me in our community groups. Why we're so crazy about community groups. And let me close with this promise from, uh, I want to read you from Charles Spurgeon, who was thinking on Psalm 42.7. The dude was a, a great preacher, but also had a lot of struggle in his life. And I think God, the fruit that was born out of that was the ability to articulate the hope that Christians in suffering have. And Psalm 42.7 says, deep calls out to deep. And he reflected on this. And again, if you've been around for a few years, I shared this once before, but he says, great deeps of trial bring with them great deeps of promise. For you much afflicted ones, there are words great and mighty which are not meant for other saints of easier experience. You shall drink from deep golden goblets reserved for those giants who can drink great potions of wormwood. Trials are mighty enlargers of the soul. So yes, feel the loneliness of life. Here is a dreadful deep for you to sail on and a tempestuous deep much to be feared for your little boat may be easily wrecked. But don't forget that there is another deep whose remembrance will remove from you the bitterness of your present sorrow. There's a love in heaven towards you which will never grow cold, immortal and unchanging love. That's God's love for you here today. As we keep going in Hebrews 12, we'll see so much more, the power of that love. But I want you to see right now, your Father in heaven has not gone anywhere. He loves you. You can trust him. And we can trust him together. That's what we're doing in here, reminding each other of the promises of God's presence, of life now and eternal. And you can trust him. You can stand up and walk and trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that rises in it. The hope of the presence of the Father, even in our struggling. God, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. 
that it would bear fruit in our lives. In fact, guys, before I, before I say amen, I want to give you a chance just for a moment to respond to the Lord. And just take your struggle to him. Maybe take your friend's struggle to him. Maybe it's not yours right now that's life-dominating, but it's your friend's. Man, I want you to just put them before the Lord. Or take yourself and say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. Help me to depend on you. Help me to walk forward. I want to grow closer to you, but I'm tired and I'm weary. So help me to walk in your strength, not mine. Maybe you need to receive the gospel message finally. You're tired from walking in your strength. God, your father says, you can have my strength. Receive forgiveness from your sins. That's what Christ has won for you on the cross. And you just need to pray, God, I believe I'm a sinner. I receive it now. I receive that forgiveness. I need you. My suffering is proven. I need you. God, help us. Help us to be a people who celebrate all the more in our suffering because we believe our Father is with us. We believe you are producing something in us. We worship the risen Christ, the hope that he brings for life now, life eternal. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.